God dag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i denne uge talt med Kate Rayworth, som er uddannet i økonomi fra University of Oxford, men forlod den akademiske verden, fordi hun var træt af fagøkonomien. Hun ville gerne lave verden om, hun ville skabe en verden, der var socialt og klimamæssigt bæredygtig, og det synes hun, fagøkonomien, som hun havde mødt den på universiteterne, stod i vejen for. Så tog hun arbejde i FN, hvor hun var med til at skrive rapporter om globalisering og menneskelig udvikling, indtil hun i 2003 begyndte at arbejde hos Oxfam. Hun arbejdede i overvis og blev ved og ved at tænke over, hvordan man kunne indrette en økonomi på en anden måde. Hun lavede rapporter, deltog i seminarer og var det, som man kalder senior researcher. For akkurat 10 år siden, der lavede hun en lille model på et stykke papir, som skulle løse et fuldstændigt grundproblem for hende. Nemlig, på den ene side, så har vi aldrig afskaffet fattigdom i menneskehedens historie uden økonomisk vækst. På den anden side har vi heller aldrig i menneskehedens moderne historie haft økonomisk vækst, uden at det har belastet klimaet. Derfor kunne Kate Rayworth simpelthen ikke finde ud af, om man skulle være imod økonomisk vækst, hvis man gerne ville skabe en grøn, bæredygtig verden, eller om man blev nødt til at være for økonomisk vækst, hvis man gerne ville skabe en social bæredygtig verden. Så lavede hun en dag en tegning på et stykke papir, som forestillede en kage. Vel at mærke den kage, som hedder en donut. Den donut var egentlig bare tænkt som en illustration, en måde at gøre nogle ting klart for hende selv på, og som hun så publicerede som et diskussionspapir fra Oxfam. Men den blev lynhurtigt til en kæmpe attraktion for alle mulige forskellige parter. Folk blev optaget af den, fordi det, som donutten gør, det er, at den skaber en ramme for, hvordan man laver en bæredygtig økonomi. Kate Raworth besluttede sig nemlig for, at det afgørende ikke er, om man er for eller imod vækst, om man holder med kampen mod fattigdom, eller om man holder med kampen for en verden uden klimaødelæggelse. Det afgørende det er at finde en model for en økonomi, som kan gøre begge dele på én gang. Donutten er egentlig ikke nogen specielt original tanke, men det er en original fremstilling af en helt basal tanke. Sagen er nemlig, at donutten den består af to koncentriske cirkler. Og man skal se donutten for sig, mens jeg nu forklarer, i midten af donutten, der har man det menneskelige minimum. Det er det sted, hvor økonomien ikke må falde ind. Det er derinde, hvor der er fattigdom, lidelse og elendighed. Uden for donutten, der har man ødelæggelse af naturgrundlaget, ozonlaget, havene. Der har man alle de forskellige eksempler på de naturlige grænser, som vi ikke må overskride. Det vil sige, hvis økonomien bevæger sig ud af donutten, så belaster den naturgrundlaget alt for meget. Hvis økonomien falder ind i døvnerten, ind i hullet i døvnerten, så betyder det, at den ikke tager højde for de menneskelige hensyn. Og inden mellem de to koncentriske cirkler, altså det, der er selve kagen i døvnerten, der har hun beskrevet helt basale menneskelige behov. Uddannelse, at man har et sted at bo, at man har noget at spise, at man har basal tryghed, at ens frihedsrettighed er forsikret. Så donutten er ikke en økonomisk teori, men det er en ramme for økonomisk teoridannelse. Og fordi den er så pædagogisk enkel, så har donutten nu erobret verden. 
Hun udgav i 2017 bogen Donutøkonomi. Syv principper for en fremtidig økonomi, som siden er blevet oversat til dansk og sandelig er udkommet på informationsforlag. Og i den bog, der beskriver hun syv principper for en økonomi, der hverken ødelægger mennesker eller ødelægger naturgrundlaget. Bogen er oversat til 20 sprog. Hun har talt med paven om den. Hun har holdt foredrag i Europaparlamentet. Hun har talt i FN's generalforsamling. I Amsterdam vedtog de i april 2020, at de ville indrette hele byen efter donutøkonomien, når de åbnede igen efter covid-nedlukning. Good evening to our viewers and listeners who are with us here in Denmark in general, and especially good evening to you, Kate Rayworth, who's with us from Oxford. Hi, really good to join you. Kate Rayworth har længe været en stor inspiration også for os her på Information, og det er en stor fornøjelse, at jeg nu kan præsentere min samtale med hende, hvor jeg lover, at vi kommer ind på alt det svære. Men også noget af det, der faktisk er pædagogisk nemt, nemlig, hvordan laver man en figur, der erobrer verden. I would like to ask you first something that comes up all the time in these talks and here in the newspaper is, in order to tackle climate change in your view, how much should we change? And Your work is very much about changing our mindset and our understanding of economy, what it is and how it should be embedded. But how much should we, in your view, change our lives? So we're kicking off with a little question, are we? Then? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just start with the easy ones. Yes. Mm, well, first of all, my immediate first reflection is for me, climate change, yes, critical, but it's not the only thing. It's not the only thing. If I can just grab a donut, here we are. There's always one handy, right? Here's the state of the world. We are whoop, this way up. This is the state of humanity in the living world. Billions of people are falling short on the essentials of life. We are overshooting multiple planetary boundaries. Yes, it's climate change, but there's also massive excessive fertilizer use, land use change, biodiversity loss, and massive human deprivation. So. Yes, we know that tackling climate change is one of the critical times. This is the critical decade. And I think we have to do a lot there already. So I think it's more than just changing the way we insulate our homes and changing the way we travel around our cities and buying slightly different things. And I think it's a much bigger story of, yeah, I, I believe actually we need a, a far deeper transformation of our economies if we're going to move from this massive overshoot and shortfall to living in the donut which is where we want to get to so it's some of those steps are small things to change and we can go a long way with changing some you know, heating and transport but i think it's a deeper change to our economies i think i think we need to, we need to re not even just rethinking the mindset that we're bringing but if we rethink that and then actually put that into practice in our economies yes it will change a lot and a lot for the better Right. I think that the, the, the question around change, sometimes we've got an inherent resistance to change. This is not going well. Like This is not a good situation. This is nothing to cling on to. We should really want to see changes in our lives and in the world so that we transform the dynamics that are in play right now because they are not working. It's been about 10 years, I think, since you came up with the idea of the donut when you were working at Oxford. Oxfam. It, it, it's, it's almost 10 years to the day. Yes. It was on it was on some like the 12th of February 2012. So literally we're almost here 10 years to the day that yeah, at Oxfam we published the donut concept as a discussion paper. It was just an idea on the side. 
And it gained so much more traction than I imagined or Oxfam imagined that here I find myself 10 years later and that little diagram I doodled is literally at the centre of my own work and, and is coming into life in so many places. So it's really nice to have this conversation at this moment. It, it is literally 10 years. You know, when, very often when we, we reflect on things, we think, oh, our, our ideas have no influence in the world. Now, you know, we listen to people at like Davos, they're saying all the right things. We have even the Pope is saying some of the right things, and he has even seen the, 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 the donut model. But we, we feel, you know, how, so how much is actually changing? Looking back over these 10 years since you introduced the, the donut model, have, have you been surprised by the effect it had? Yeah, I was immediately surprised because I hadn't realized until we published it, I hadn't realized the power of pictures. And of course, what the donut is expressing is a vision of humanity thriving, meeting the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. Now, of course, this was not the first time that this vision had been put out. It, the donut didn't begin that vision, but what it did was give an image to it. And I've learned the power of pictures, that we can use words, and mathematicians and economists sometimes use equations, but there's nothing to beat a picture that visualizes and changes the, the deep ideas that we have. Images go in through our eyes and they go into the visual cortex at the back of your mind and profoundly influence how we think and the metaphors we use and what we think is the shape of progress. So yeah, when we first published that discussion paper back in 2012, I never imagined that it would cause me to leave my job, which I loved, in order to go and write a book, which is Donut Economics. And then I never imagined that presenting that book, when I was, when I was on tour in, in Denmark and in many other countries, people would come up to me after I presented it and say, love it, and I'm doing it. I wanna put it into practice in my town council, in my community, in my new startup, in my school. And that was so exciting. So I never imagined that I would find myself now co-founding Donut Economics Action Lab and working with city councils and community organizations and teachers and startups all over the world of people who are saying, I want to put this into practice. So yeah, ideas can be powerful because they, especially visual ones that give people something to point to, that's the worldview I hold and I can articulate it and I can point to changes in the world that are happening that start to make this visible. At the core of, of, of what you're saying now and, and of the book is the conviction that, that we live by metaphors. And that you're referring also to this book by Lakoff and Johnson that mm. we were all reading in the 90s about yeah. how, how our political imagination is shaped by metaphors. And if you want to, if you want to change it, then you, you also change the metaphors. Then over this 10-year period, when, when you've been traveling with this mindset and this picture of the donut, who are susceptible to these uh, metaphors and who are not? Oh, interesting. Well, one answer would be that people who've studied economics, trained in economics, teach economics, practice it and use it every day, for them it's harder to, to make that a shift because they're already so embedded in the mindset that they're using. And, and it's a mindset, let me grab a little bit of hosepipe, it's a mindset that says this is the shape of progress, right? And we hear it in economic and political speeches every day, GDP growth. I mean, you and I are now sitting in two of the richest countries in the world, in the history of humanity. And yet the governments and economists in both of our nations believe that the future success of our economies depends upon yet more growth. So this shape of progress is deeply embedded in many people's minds and language and listen to many politicians. And even you can feel they're trying to get away from that. They say we want 
good growth or green growth or clean growth or smart or balanced or equitable growth, but it always comes back to growth because that mindset is so deeply rooted. Now, other people who find it easier to shift away from that are probably people who aren't currently in positions of power and needing to speak that language that's already accepted in power. It's younger generation of students who say, well, of course, this, the donut makes far more sense to me. Uh, it's, it's people who are outside of formal institutions and have, because of their institutional roles, aren't required to show that they speak the prevailing language of power. I'll give one little example. Once I was in Belgium and a young professor of economics uh, came to a seminar where I was presenting these ideas and we had great discussions. And then at the end of it, over coffee, he said to me, you know, I love the ideas that you present them in your book and I find them really exciting and I would love to teach them, but I'm on track for getting tenure. So I have to be cautious. And that was a real blow to me actually hearing. He was young. He was like in his mid thirties. These are the professors of the future who are going to be teaching the next generation. But because he was on track to getting tenure, to getting a permanent position, to becoming a professor, because of his lock in in the institutions, he had to perform to the language of power and he had to show his elders and his judges that he was on their track. And, and in so many places, in so many ways, I think people get caught in repeating the existing paradigm. And even though they know it doesn't work, but it's it until very recently it seemed so radical to to speak about thriving instead of growing but i have to say in recent years partly because of the increasing intensity of the news about climate breakdown about ecological breakdown the increasing crises that we live through i think more and more people in spaces of power are, are turning towards the donut and other visions of well-being that when a decade ago said, well, that's really radical. Now they're saying, well, obviously this is where we need to start getting to. So it's fascinating seeing the mainstream moving in this direction because the crisis of our time make it obvious that we need to change. And I think there's also something very inspirational about your book because some parts of the book are criticism of economic history. And to, to be fair, you actually also say, well, this is the genius of Adam Smith. This was a different time. This one is a different era. He would probably have written something completely different today. But there's a there's a criticism of the economic paradigms, and and they're very. It, it's a good read, and you're online. But I've read some a lot of it before. But what you come up with is a positive figure. It's something that we can actually do. It's like a new picture on the wall. And the uh, the the genius of it is that it's very simple. Everyone can grasp it. Almost everyone can grasp it and you can implement it in all different spheres of, of life. Were you convinced from the beginning that you needed to come up with something more than just a critique of growth and just a critique of neoliberalism, a positive picture? Totally, totally convinced of that. And I'm really glad that that was so clear to you in reading the book, because I think we can protest, but as George Lakoff would say, going back to metaphors and framing, if you're simply critiquing growth, you're actually just reinforcing growth. You're just against it. But you're still you're still speaking to that. If you're critiquing the old frameworks, we're saying, well, here's all here's five problems with it, but we don't have anything else. So we carry on using it, keeping a note of those problems. But we forget them when we carry on all the same. I think of it as like intellectual graffiti that's sprayed on our minds. <laughs> it's really hard to scrub out graffiti. It's much easier to paint over with a new mural. So instead of trying to erase what's wrong, let's be propositional. And, and there's a wonderful quote from Buckminster Fuller, right? He says, 
you never change things by by fighting the existing reality. If you want to change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete, that just leaves it behind. And, and I'm, I'm a big believer in that. Of course, we have to be clear about what's wrong with the old, but unless you propose a new, there's nowhere to turn to. We're just left critiquing the old. So I think that one of the most powerful forms of protest is to propose something new. And I do want to say, I'm really glad you noticed that I made a point of recognizing what was good and valuable and useful in Adam Smith's theories, in John Maynard Keynes's theories, in many economists. These were smart people who were making models that were useful for their time. But when Adam Smith was alive, there wasn't yet one billion people on the planet. The global economy was only one three hundredth of the size it is today. So the models that made sense in his day are just not at all the models that make sense in our time. And I love to imagine, well, bring Adam Smith here, bring Karl Marx here, bring John Maynard Keynes. They would say, well, you're still using my model, but that's from centuries ago. Come on, come up with models that start with the reality of your times. And that's what Donut Economics aims to do, start with the reality of our times and bring together the best of what's been called heterodox or new economic thinking, feminist and ecological economics and complexity, because there's some amazing ideas there, not just critiques, but propositions. But I wanted to bring them together on the page. So it was a such an adventure and a really tough adventure. It was hard to write this book for me, but it was a real adventure of seeing what happens when you when you make them dance. And can I represent them in as simple as possible diagrams? That As soon as I realised that that was a real a real key to it. Then it became a great game. How simple can I make this diagram? How visually can I show from the old to the new? So yeah, I love that bit of it. Yeah, I imagine that when you understood that you were writing seven principles for the economy of the future, that you have given yourself that task, you know, having said, this is the job that I've at, at times you must have asked, am I the right to do this? A am I crazy to try and do this? But I think it's really, it's really, really successful. So just you to jump that? in there, because that's a, that's a very, I want to be totally straight up about that. I, I said, yeah, I'm going to write, I gave the book a subtitle, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And then I just thought, I don't, I, I can't, I, who am I to say how to think like a 21st century economist? And people were sending me ideas and I was reading things. Is this genius? Is this crazy? Which way is up? Can we have growth? Can we not have growth? I got really caught in knots. And I, I think it's really important to say that because a book, you know, it's it's beautifully designed. It's laid out. It's printed. Everything looks clean. It looks easy by the time it's finished. But my goodness, I struggled and I nearly gave up. And in fact, there was one day it was can tell you it was the 5th of August 2014 and I was sitting in a cafe and I drew these I had these seven ways and I, and I realized I had seven little iconic diagrams for the old ways of thinking and I had three or four for the new ways and it was literally that flash of this is how to do it I need seven diagrams for the old seven for the new this becomes the thread that runs through the whole book and from the moment I had that clarity and realized I can create these new diagrams, I actually had this boundless energy. I, I, I lost my worries and doubts. I had real clarity of what I was doing and what I'm not doing. Um, and I say that because I know there's a lot of people on their own writing projects, whether they're doing a PhD or a dissertation or writing their own book, and it's hard and you get lost in the middle of it. And believe that you will, you will find that moment where you, you get that thread through, you get that clarity go with it because because that carries you through 
having now traveled with the with the thesis or the thought for for 10 years and you've had the privilege and i believe that really is a privilege mm. of meeting a lot of different people you know business leaders from the absolute top of the business world speaking to the european parliament and mm. the un general assembly what did how did you revise the thought yourself what did you learn from talking to all these people oh great question so the first thing that becomes obvious is that so many people want to think like this and they say this just makes sense to me <laughs> but because of the roles they're in in an institution like i was giving this example of the young professor or in a company or a member of parliament or working for a member of parliament because of the roles we're in an institution that's constructed around us people feel this real internal tension of i want to this makes sense to me in this new way but i don't quite know how to introduce it into my workplace and will it be ridiculed will it work and how would it how would it work more widely so let's say somebody wants to introduce it in a town can we can we reimagine the future of our town around these ideas you're starting to try to create transformation in a town that's in a district that's in a nation that's in a region that's in the world that's untransformed and so of course there is scope and power for making that transformation but you're always going to bump up against the edges of laws or rules or infrastructures that are set above your scale and i'm fascinated seeing people engaging with that anyway i mean that's what energizes me that's what's mm -hmm. kept me here 10 years and more that it's when people take the ideas and say yeah and i'm going to figure out how to get this started where i am i know i can't go all the way with it i'm going to get it started i'm going to get this rolling and then they bring it back and we see how they've started putting it into practice It, that is so energizing knowing that there are brilliant change makers everywhere embedded in all kinds of institutions and when they get an idea say right i can take that i know in my context how to start making that happen that is is so re-energizing and re-inspiring it was voted through in amsterdam i think it was just after lockdown actually it must have been i, I just thought of that now april may April 2020. It was actually the height of COVID crisis in Amsterdam. It was their month at the highest rates of infection when they introduced it there. Yeah. Yeah, and and they wanted to use the vision and the framing of of of, of donut e economics. So you downscaled it to fit the city. How how did you do that? So first of all, the city of Amsterdam had been interested in it for a while, and they were introducing a policy around becoming a circular city. So having and the Netherlands has introduced some really progressive legislation saying we should be 100% circular by 2050, 50% circular by 2030. I mean, I think this should be standard legislation in all EU and, and high income countries anyway. But the Netherlands has set itself. So Amsterdam says, right, how do we make this happen? And they they realize they don't just want to be circular as in thinking only about material flows. This is about going back to your first question how much do we need to change it's not just changing about how materials flow and making them flow around the ground this changes how we have jobs this changes how we heat our homes how we import products into the city and how they go out so they wanted a bigger vision of which circularity is a part and they saw the donut and said this provides us with a much bigger compass of where we want to get to and the the, the deputy mayor who introduced it said yeah we're going to launch this in the middle of covid because We know that as we once we come through this moment of crisis, when we start to emerge from emergency, we will 
start going in a direction. So which direction are we going to go? Are we going to go back where we've been, where we already knew we wanted to move away from? We're going to go in this direction. So it gives us a new compass of the direction we want to head in. So we, we created the first downscaling for the city of Amsterdam. And when they launched it in April 2020, it clearly had inspirational knock-on effects in other cities and places. And I think, in fact, it was Copenhagen. I think yeah. six weeks later, had a vote in the in the, the council saying, we, we vote to explore this. Look yes. at what this would mean. Let's, t- let's you know, go around it. What would it mean if we were to start putting it this at the heart of our policies? So I can I can give you an explanation of what it what, what does it mean to bring it down to the scale? Of the city? Yeah, exactly. So here's the big question for any ambitious place that wants to to aim to get into the donut. The question is, is how can our city become a home to thriving people in a naturally thriving place? That's the local aspiration while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet. Now, that's a complex thing. So it's got four parts to it. One, what would it mean for everybody here to thrive? Everybody in our city to have health and education and housing and food and electricity and transport, political voice and income. That means nobody is left falling short in the essentials of life. And that's a local conversation. What does it mean to thrive here? That's going to be different in Copenhagen, in Curaçao, it's going to be different in Cochabamba because it's different communities and cultures, what thriving looks like. So how can everybody here thrive? Then the second question says, how can our city thrive within its natural habitat? And this comes from the work of a brilliant biomimicry design thinker, Janine Benyus. If Janine were there in Copenhagen, she'd say to you, right, take me to the wild land next door. Take me to the healthiest natural habitat of this place where we can really see how nature is here as much as possible, how nature's here if we haven't farmed it or built over it or created a highway. How does nature perform here? Because nature has a genius hmm. in every location on the planet. Nature sequesters carbon and cleans the water and houses wildlife and, and, and cools the air. How could nature's standards become standards for our city? So it's an, an amazing aspiration for our cities to be as generous as the wildland next door. So those two are the local aspirations, thriving people, an ecologically thriving place. And then we step back and realize that every place has global responsibilities. It's not enough to have great coffee and housing and Wi-Fi and great schools for our kids. And there's fresh water and forests and clean air. That's a nice to live in. But every place is drawing in materials from around the world for food imports, clothing, textiles, Uh, mobile phones and laptops, construction materials, and then has a stream of waste going out. So we have a footprint far beyond our cities. And that's where a lot of our carbon emissions show up, not within our cities. It's all the emissions emitted to produce the products on sale in the city. Our global footprint, most, in fact, no, not most, all high income nations and therefore high income cities are overshooting planetary boundaries. We are massively overshooting our share on the planet. So we need to reduce not just carbon emissions, back to climate change, but also our material footprint. And that's why we need low carbon and circular economies to reuse and repurpose and refurbish those materials and reduce our energy demand. And the last one, think of all the people in those global supply chains who stitch the clothes and pick the food and assemble our mobile phones. What are the labor conditions for those people? And how can we ensure through company supply chains, through city procurement, that their rights are respected? Now, I realize that everything I just said is complex. It's a lot. (laughs) But it doesn't go away just because we ignore it. It's always there. 
And so what we aim to do when we unroll the donut is to make that complexity visible in a really accessible, irresistible way. And we're, we're about to release a lovely set of tools that people can use in their own communities and towns to explore that space and ask, what are the critical transformations? Whether it's Donna Haraway or Michael Mann's vision, what are the critical transformations? How would that enable us to meet the needs of everybody here while coming back within the means of the planet? The last thing I'll say is the donut framework does not give you the answer. That would be weird. How could we have the answer for your place? The answer for your place is going to come from within your place. It's going to come from within the context, within the innovations, and with inspiration from elsewhere. But the donut framework gives you a canvas, a space for holistic reflection, and the answers come locally, which I think is partly why it's got an appeal. People don't feel like it's being imposed upon them, but rather they're taking the tool and making local sense of it. Yeah, I think that's part of the appeal as well. Also, because it's not, you know, it does not speak to right wing or left wing metaphors. It's not, you know, it's not a theory. It's not, uh, it, it's it's a visualization of some, of some limits and some criteria that everybody, you know, it's it's at the point where everybody can actually agree on some premises and then you can then then you can work from here so how mm. do you see now it's been almost two years in 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 in, in amsterdam what, what what has been the experience there and so i have that question to the people of amsterdam because i'm not <laughs> i i so i'll tell you but just to say i think it's really important that answer comes from with amsterdam right i'm not sure. their judge i'm not their keeper but they've introduced it um during covid uh they've what I, what i hear from amsterdam is the way the city government is bringing it to life is through looking at textile supply chains so there's a lot of denim um industry and textile industries in the area and they want to become not silicon valley but denim valley or textile valley and so they're looking at how can they create a circular economy around textile and denim use and reuse they're using it in the food sector so looking across food and how can they create a circular economy that actually improves the health and income of low income and, and people, but also reduces their impact on the planet. And then introducing it also in the space of construction. How can they build new houses that don't just have the same old carbon emissions and footprint of all housing before? How can it be built using and reusing materials? So really getting serious about putting that circular design in practice. But I think one of the reasons why it's really taken off in Amsterdam is because at the same time, that the city government said, oh, this looks interesting for our policy. A group of, a, a range of people across civic networks were also starting to engage with it because it spoke to what they were already doing. And they clubbed mm, together yeah. and created the Amsterdam Donut Coalition. And that's an amazing civic group, really sh showing each other and making visible the transformation that's already underway. So just as it's not enough to protest, but we need to actually be propositional. I think it's also really important not just to complain with what's not working yet and where we're outside the donut, but to celebrate what is already in motion and the initiatives that are already springing up and the new kinds of enterprises that are already moving in this direction, because we need that, that the energy that comes from seeing that there's momentum there. So the Amsterdam Donut Coalition, by the way, there's also a Copenhagen Donut Coalition. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So anybody who's interested get in touch, find them, get in touch, join up. What are they doing? And how is this being made visible in your city? <laughs> and, and I think, but there, we are not as far as they are, they are in Amsterdam. That's why we're looking at Amsterdam 
all the time. But I think to a certain extent that COVID has been helpful here because of COVID, we've been aware and not just we as uh, the liberal elites are working in the newspapers and universities, but the general public has been made aware of the supply chains. Now we know that, and it's not just for microchips or some very delicate and advanced elements in our production. It's also even for some basic face masks and stuff like that. So we're all of a sudden aware because now this week we couldn't get canned tomatoes. Why don't we get canned tomatoes? <laughs> you know, so, so we're in a situation now where we're becoming aware of our dependencies. Mm. And at first it's kind of a, why can't we get what we're used to getting? But mm. then the next phase is like responsibilities. So this, that we're, we're buying these uh, parts in Indonesia or in Madagascar or in India, what are our responsibilities? And the next is what, what we buy here, what does that do for them there? So to that extent, I think COVID has actually made us kind of more global citizens and more aware of something that is very, very easy not to think of all the damage that is done to create our shiny, happy lives here in the Western metropolitan areas. How do you see COVID in that aspect? Well, everything you just said makes I I could immediately be plotting it on those four lenses that I shared of the because you were talking about we we are coming to more realize we are globally connected our material impact but also our social impact through these supply chains to make that visible you need exactly the the, the framework that I just described so that we can see it and realize that so yes I agree and if you can't buy it in Copenhagen or in Denmark a country that is a high income, well supplied, well locked into global supply chains. Just imagine what it's like in, in Egypt, in Bangladesh, and you know the shortages and the, the lack of money in the first place, but also the shortages. So these are these crises are very real, and that global interdependency of the food system is very very real. By the way, in the UK, I think COVID plus Brexit <laughs> means we have had empty supermarket shelves, like shockingly empty supermarket shelves. And people have often saying, is, is this COVID? Is this Brexit? We don't know. But it's extraordinary how, how things can quickly get thinned out. And I think that does make people have it. You know, supermarkets love to stock. It's, it's always there. There's plenty, abundance, abundance. Suddenly, no, it's gone. And I think we see the edges of the fragility of the systems we've created. But I think another thing that COVID's done as well as making us aware of our interdependence on global supply chains, is, is raise this question of whose work is essential work? Who can't stop going to work? We need the doctors and the nurses. We need the, the care home staff. We need the drivers and the deliverers. We need the shelf stackers. And actually, of course, these are often the lower paid jobs in society. And so it's, it's really opened up questions of what kind of work is essential work and why is it so often low paid compared to other work which isn't essential at all? And I think the last thing that it's shown, certainly here in the UK and I think everywhere, is policies that would have seemed impossible in December 2019 suddenly just became what's happening. We're going to shut schools. We're going to close down the airports. You all have to stay indoors. We're going to pay the wages of the nation's workers. We're going to put all homeless people in hotels. And I think it opened up a recognition that governments can act and act with urgency and emergency and find funds for funding vaccines. When they've told us that, you know, that this isn't possible and the scope of policy, it's not feasible, it shows what can be done when an emergency is treated like that. 
And so it, that, that reflects back onto climate change. So why can't we act with that same level? Of, so we can ground airplanes because of COVID, but not because of climate change. Why can't we have that urgency? And I, I think it's, it's really opened up our realization of the scope that is possible if we believe and act with the urgency that's required. I think we've been going through three phases here in the newspaper with regards to what you're saying. At first, we were like, well, this is incredible. Now we show that taking care of the elderly is more important than economic growth. Well, what it, now we really, everything that we thought we were dependent on, we can actually negotiate. Do we need to travel to Thailand? Do we need to, to fly? So at first we thought, well, everything that couldn't be changed, it's negotiable. What a wonderful time that we're alive. Now we can find this is what we needed. Uh, but then after a year or two, we realized that for a lot of people, getting back to normal was not just about getting back to abundance and consumption. It was about getting back to safety. And they, they were often from the lower classes. There were people working in the service business, people working in, in manual labor, you know, that it was pretty much a middle upper class dream that now we don't have to go back. But people were, yes, government were paying their wages, but they were longing to get back to normal and to be put to using it. And for us, you know, we could work like this, no matter what, what are the restrictions. And then we also had the realization that, well, we have huge public investments, but hey, it doesn't do anything positive to inequality. You know, the rich are getting richer and, and the, the, the poor are not dying, but they're not really, there's no redistribution of power at all. So that was the second phase, kind of dissolution, you know? Mm -hmm. Not only are Jeff is Jeff Bezos getting even richer and more powerful, but the working class, service classes, they actually need to get back to normal. Then the third phase, I think we're in now, we're saying, well, something will change, but it doesn't look the way we imagine change would look like. That, you know, people have actually changed their mindsets, that people don't want their crappy jobs in America anymore. There, you know, you have this great resignation. You see people here have, are starting to uh, arrange holidays here in Denmark, in the countryside. And, you know, people are starting walking. So things will change, but not how we imagined. So how do you see the, this dilemma between the need for change and the possibility for change? And then on the other hand, that we must also respect that some people need to get back to life the way it was. So some people definitely need to get back to having an income and having the stability of that, because those are people who are falling below that social foundation and their their stability and security is key. But I don't think it means going back to the way it was. So let's say people are going back into the building industry. Are we going to go back to building buildings as we've always built them? Or are we going to actually transform the way we build and create good new jobs in a circular building economy? Because COVID is the crisis that's been literally in the headline every day for the last two years. But it's it's not the biggest crisis that we're <laughs> in. We are in a bigger climate and ecological breakdown. And if we don't use disruptions, let's think of let, let's take the first 50 years of this century. Right. We're 20 years in. We've had financial meltdown. We're in the middle of climate and ecological breakdown. We've just lived through two years of COVID lockdown. If we don't use the disruption of COVID lockdown to change the direction of our economies, if we just go back to where we were, we are deepening the climate and ecological breakdown that we're already in. That's why it made sense in Amsterdam to say, in the midst of COVID, 
we're going to launch this vision of getting into the donut because we know as we emerge, this is a disruption we need, or we need to, at least, if this disruption is happening, we need to harness it to pivot away from a far bigger breakdown of the living world. So yes, to getting people back into jobs, but let's get people into jobs that, for example, in the UK, 27 million homes are really poorly insulated. There's probably a joke about UK housing. I know there is in many parts of, of, of the world of so badly built, the Victorian houses, there's no insulation, they're drafty. We need to insulate our homes. There are really good jobs, therefore, to be created in insulating homes inside and outside, in retrofitting solar panels, in um, decarbonizing our energy systems. So let's get people into those jobs rather back into the old jobs that were actually part of the degradation. Yeah, what do you think? I, I, I think so, too. And I think I love what they did in Amsterdam because, you know, you you must you must create new jobs for the same people on the other side of COVID. I agree with you that there's a window of opportunity that must be seized and that that we really have some opportunity now that we didn't have two or three years ago. So, but I'm, uh, I'm, when I get up in the morning, I think we'll seize it. When I go to bed at night, I'm, 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 a, I'm a little skeptical because you see the, the political frameworks are so fragile uh, all around the world. But there's a question that I must ask you, uh, mm. and we don't have a lot of time left, but this is a very important question for me because, uh, and it's, it is for you as well, you end the book with the reflection on growth versus climate change. You know, uh, what should we, who want to live in a sustainable world, who want to respect the ecological limits and, and who want thriving humans, what should we think of growth? And it's, you know, it's the one issue that I hate writing editorials about because, you know, you, like you say very, very precisely, we have eliminated human suffering through history without some kind of growth. And every time we had growth, we also eliminated some, some of our natural habitat. So it's, a, and I, I also thought that I was a very weak person, that I was a morally flawed person because I could not find out what I really meant, whether I was for growth or against growth. I couldn't, you know, and I know, I, I hate it. I know I, I go through the editorial and I can't, oh, I can't finish it. I can't finish it. But your book was very helpful for me. So please tell us how you think we should reflect on this question. So I love the idea that you think you were morally weak because you couldn't solve this. I mean, that question really <laughs> did me in. I mean, I when I, before I began, before I even drew the donut, I, when I was at Oxfam, I was writing a paper about can we have green growth or not? It was supposed to be a discussion paper for a campaign we were doing. I was excited because I thought, yes, this takes me back to macroeconomic thinking. And the topic skewered me. I literally, my throat tightened. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't speak. My stomach was in a knot because I was so caught by this question. As you just said, I, I, I can't see a way around it. We've never eliminated human deprivation without growth. And we've never eliminated environmental degradation with growth. So what do we do? For me, it is the existential economic question of our times. And so I feel your pain. And I think we're, we're, we, we need to face it together because uh, and many more people need to face up to it because it's so much easier to stay in the growth paradigm. It's so much easier just to speak for growth because that's the way that the, the mainstream wants to go. But if we step back and remember that here we are alive on the only known living planet in the whole darn universe. 
and that this planet is delicately balanced and life and conditions conducive to life are what enable everything that we do. So we need to create economic systems that are compatible with conditions of life. And when we look at how living systems thrive and succeed for billions of years, growth is this wonderful, healthy phase of life, right? This shape, our gardens grow, plants, new leaves, new shoots. We love it. It's beautiful. Our children grow. We know things are alive and healthy when they're growing. Except there's an end to that because there's also times when growth is, is dangerous. If somebody, in, I, I don't know how you say it in Danish, but in English, if my friend goes to the doctor and the doctor tells her she has a growth, that means cancer. And when ah. something is growing inside of us, we are delicately balanced living beings, just like our whole planet is. If something is growing inside of us, that is a threat to the health of the whole. It's growing endlessly. So if we can step, take those metaphors of what, how life survives, nothing in nature grows forever. And if it tries to, it will destroy itself or the thing on which it depends. So how can we pull back and say, okay, it, turned, it looks so far, the evidence so far is that we have not managed to have a growing GDP with sufficiently rapid cuts in carbon emissions and sufficiently rapid cuts in the material footprint. We can't dematerialize economic growth. We haven't, I say we can't, let me be careful here. There's no evidence at all yet that we can dematerialize economic growth on the scale and at the speed that is required to come back within planetary boundaries. So what do you do when there's no evidence that your wish can come true? Do you carry on wishing it and carry on speaking for green growth and hoping the technologies will appear and the evidence will someday appear? Or do you say we need to actually pull back from that? Because if we're wrong and if that dream doesn't come true, it's catastrophic. So we need to pull away and look very plainly at the growth dependency that's been written into the design of our economies. We're financially dependent upon endless growth because that's the way we've constructed finance to pursue gain, to pursue the maximum rate of return. We're politically dependent upon it because nations compete to have a growing GDP to be on the political world stage. And that's how we raise tax revenue. And that's how we ensure people have got jobs, keep the economy growing. And we've been socially trained to believe that we hand on a better life to our kids if they can have a bigger house and more cars and more stuff. So we need to take this financial and political and social growth dependency out of our mindset, out of the design of our economies. That's not easy. And I certainly don't know how to do it, but I raised the questions at the end of my book because I believe that is the next set of questions that need to be tackled so we can learn to thrive without endlessly growing. Last thing I'll say. Sure. Because I know I'm saying a lot. Last thing I'll say is what amazes me is that uh, even five years ago, this was way too radical for politicians. And yet I am struck by the number of politicians who are starting to move from talking about a growing economy to a thriving economy. So taking away that presumption that good is always growing, but also whether it's in the European Commission or whether in particular nations, really opening up to saying, how can we explore futures that don't depend upon endless growth? I would not have expected these conversations to be happening in the heart of institutions. They're sometimes on the side within those institutions, but they are beginning. And I think they're going to gain more and more attention because they become more and more pressing that this is a reality we need to face. Yeah, and I think that's a very inspirational ending because this actually goes back to what you were saying in the beginning. 
that if you create some graffiti on the wall that you cannot erase, that you see how we thrive is just such an important question. Then you cannot eliminate the question of growth, but you can sideline it. So it's not that important. So we don't have to feel like morally weak characters. You at least are definitely not. Thank you so much for taking your time. We will follow your work and be inspired by it. Thank you, Kate Rayworth. Oh, thank you. Such a pleasure to have this conversation. And if anyone's interested, check out donuteconomics.org, Deals Lab, or check out the Copenhagen Donut Coalition and put these ideas into practice. You, I can't wait to see what comes back. Thank you. Det var min samtale med den britiske forfatter og økonom Kate Rayworth. Bogen Donut Økonomi kan købes, hvis man går ind på informations hjemmeside og så klikker på der, hvor der står butikken. Så kan man få den bestilt, og man kan få den til det, som vi på jysk kalder for en rigtig god penge. I næste uge skal jeg tale med en afrikansk kvinde på 26 år, som er blevet en held for klimabevægelsen. Og en, som vi citerer i tid og utid her i langsomme samtaler. Det er nemlig Elisabeth Watuti. Det var hende, der stillede sig op og holdt åbningstalen på COP26, hvor hun sagde de berømte ord Please open your heart til verdens ledere og gav sig et temperament og en psykologi for klimabevægelsen, som har været kolossalt inspirerende, men som i næste øjeblik, når man tænker over det, også er kolossalt forpligtende. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.